0: Think of the difference between an iPhone video and a Sundance film. Camera audio versus a studio track. A novice or someone with experience. Sure, each has their place, but which will have maximum impact? Summer Shower Productions, a black-owned, woman-owned production company built to create valuable and inspirational content for you. Whether it's a promotional video, a short film, interviews, event photography or utilizing our extensive editing and post-production tools to take your already captured content to the next level we always bring creativity integrity and passion to every project we produce so consider summer shower productions for your next project let's build something great together What's going on, folks, and happy New Year! Welcome back to the Be More Today Show, season two of the Be More Today Show, episode forty-one. And folks, I gotta say it right here: Happy New Year! I've missed you so much. It's been a great uh, a vacation away from you guys, but I'm happy to be back with you, and I'm happy to engage with you again for the Be More Today Show. Now, you folks already know, we've been doing a lot of great things for last year and this year is going to be no different. And I had to make sure I started this year with a bang. Before I bring on my special guest, the quote for today is very, very simple. Watch your thoughts, they will become words. Watch your words, they will become actions. Watch your actions, they will become habits. Watch your habits, they will become character. Watch your character, it will become your destiny. It makes sense, right? Thoughts become actions, actions become habits. Habits become your character and character becomes your destiny. I don't know how 2020 was for you. Uh, For me, it was insane. It was a lot of work, a lot of madness, a lot of trials and tribulations. But we got through it and I recognized that every single time I had a thought, it became uh, a word and so on and so forth. So I don't know about you this year, but make sure that your your, your thoughts are going to be the seeds that we have going forward. That whatever you think that goes into your mind, that it will come in action. So watch what you think, watch what you believe in, watch what you say. Uh, these things that we have for this year—it's a new year, it's a fresh start. We can make this year whatever you want to make it, and it's a great time to begin new things. You know, last year I talked about a lot of stops and starts and goals, but scratch all that. This year, I just want you to start stuff. Start having a positive mindset. Start having a, a better uh, way of looking at the future. Um, a better way of looking at the at the present, and. I believe that if we just have those positivities in our lives, right, the good thing that we want to do, uh, just the thoughts, plant the seeds, that we will see change, that we will be able to be better people, and we'll make 2021 better than it was last year. I mean, it has to be, right? There's no other way for us to have this year be better or worse than last year. 2020 was insane. Um, so I'm looking forward to this year being a better start for all of us. And for this show, I'm going to bring on people who are going to inspire us to do that. Uh, The View More Today Show has been going through a number of changes, but again, we've grown so much in the last uh, almost a year. February will be a year for us next month. And now we're in 30 countries. Uh, Of course, the book and the podcast are growing and prospering, and it's all thanks to your love and support. Even the thought for this podcast, Thought you More Today, was a simple thought that became an action. And if I can do that, if I can uh, move forward from my thoughts to make them actions, I know you can as well. So I inspire you, hopefully, and I encourage you uh, to go out there and make your thoughts realities. And soon, those thoughts will become your destiny. My guest for today, folks, is uh, super special to me. She's someone who, uh, I had on the last episode, the last episode of 2020, and I had her on there with my little baby girl, Sonali. And as you can see, we are here. We are actually solo today, which has never, never, never happened. So we got to take advantage of it. But her name is the illustrious and ever so sweet Himangi Pai. Now, for those of you who don't know my wife, um, I'm going to read her bio, and we'll talk about her in a little bit. But she, at an early age, knew that she wanted to devote her life to empowering marginalized people. Growing up in Ohio, Hamangi often felt her minority voice was overlooked and ignored. Hoping to assist others who shared her minority experiences, she majored in pre-law at the University of Toledo with the intent of becoming a civil rights attorney. While at Toledo, Pai worked closely with professors to create law and social thought an interdisciplinary program centered on the relationship between law, morality, and power. Based on her studies, she became interested in criminal law. Following her undergraduate studies, Hamagi attended Northeastern Law School, focusing her attention on race and criminal law. After graduating from law school, Hamagi worked as a staff attorney at the Committee for Public Counsel Services, Public Defender Division in Springfield, Massachusetts. She took a holistic approach to lawyering by building relationships with her clients based on trust and support that went beyond the courtroom. Hamangi worked closely with key players in the criminal justice system, including probation officers, community organizations, and even judges, to find alternative resolutions to incarceration. In 2007, Hamangi moved to New York to pursue her academic interests and attended the New School for Social Research, focusing her studies on race and crime. Shortly after, Hamangi realized her purpose was advocacy, and she was better suited for the courtroom. She returned to practicing law in 2009 when she began working as an agency attorney for the Administration for Children's Services. In 2011, Hamagi returned to criminal defense and began working at Brooklyn Defender Services. She was currently a senior trial attorney in the Homicide Serious Crimes Unit. Prior to her work in this unit, Pai worked as a senior trial attorney on the Brooklyn Adolescent Representation Team at BDS, where she exclusively represented youth ages 14 to 24 charged with serious felonies. She's also an active professor at the borough of Manhattan College, Community College. Hamangi is a proud member of the Kingsborough Temple Seventh-day Adventist Church, where she serves as an AYS committee, and she's also a member of Spartan Sundays and Spartan Sundays Running Club. With the help of her Spartan family, Homange has completed 13 Spartan races, a Tough Mudder, dozens of NYC races, and two NYC marathons. She lives with me in Brooklyn with our amazing five-year-old daughter Sonali Pai Thomas. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, pets included, please welcome to the stage for the second time the woman who is not even behind me, she's really in front of me and makes me just a better person, Hamangi Pai Thomas. What's up, boo?
1: Hey, that was nice. I'm in front of you, duh,
0: Thanks. <laughs> Your bio is uh, super extensive. I forget how accomplished you are, to be honest.
1: <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. Um, I am just going to leave it at that. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I got to just give a little homage to you. You know, this is uh everything about Be Today is really uh, a testament to you. You were the one who helped me to organize these thoughts um to organize what we want to do uh you know I always had I always have these ideas but you're kind of the one who goes in here and you put the pieces together you you're the glue basically that makes these things happen and from the book to the book launch party uh even to the 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 podcast and now we're at 41 episodes this is all really a testament to what you've helped me do and um you're not just someone who I met 16 years ago um, as, as a girlfriend, you've become more than that to me, a wife, partner, um, someone who challenges me, uh, even when I don't want to hear it. And, you know, I, I had to have you on the show just because I, I recognize that even though we're so busy, um, I've seen you literally doing all the work that you've done, um, balance everything and and do it in a way that is just remarkable. So uh, thank you for being on the show, uh, although you had no choice, really. And I'm excited <laughs> that you're actually here. And I got to check in with you and see how you're doing. Um, I know it's a new year, and 2020 was insane. But how are you feeling now? Uh, and and what's your current situation with COVID-19? Work life? Uh, how are you?
1: Um, well, I am. I'm great, actually. Um, 2020 was very hard, but we made it through. I mean, we're like, you know, we're, we're, we're in, we're about to be in 2021 and um, you know, I'm, I feel very blessed. Um, we had some ups and downs this year, but I feel like we came out on top. Uh, I'm, I will be honest with you. I'm struggling a little bit because uh, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later on in the show, but I'm somebody who really struggles with anxiety and I have a lot of like, um trepidation about things going well because of my upbringing and because of the things that I've experienced in life. And so right now when things are all kind of going well and we're about to enter into this new year and we have all this like hope for the new year, there's a part of me that's like, so when will the other shoe drop? Like what's the bad thing that's about to happen and how do I prep for it? But I've been really trying to think about the quote that you stated at the beginning, which is like, being mindful of your thoughts because your thoughts turn into actions and your actions turn into like sort of the direction of your life. And so, um, no, I'm, I'm trying to just keep an open mind. I, I really believe that God has a plan for me this year. Um, I feel like 2020 was really just about surviving. And what I learned a lot in 2020 was about my relationship to motherhood. And so that was a really big, um, a uh, lesson for me because I was not somebody who really um I'm motherhood doesn't come naturally to me. And so I learned a lot being home. I, I've listened to to I think all of if not most of your shows. <laughs> and you talk a lot about how me and Sonali are home together. And there was a period where you know we were together for six months. Um, while there was no school and no daycare. And, uh, you know, that was a real test for me for motherhood. And I'm happy to know that we survived and that she's great. And that, um, you know, that, that I was able to actually be an effective mom. I don't know that I would say I was a great mom, but I was a good mom and an effective mom. So, um, that's where I'm at.
0: <laughs> well, I thank you for sharing that you were effective and you were a good mom. Um, you know, if the tables were turned, I'm not sure if I would have been as effective as you were, um, and are, cause you know, we're still in this, like, you know, COVID-19 is still here, um, virtual school could happen any day, you know, given what situations at, 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 at school. So, um, it's a, it's an everyday ongoing process, but I think you have been Superwoman. We actually watched Superwoman moment over the holiday break, and I thought about you. You are a Superwoman. You you've done uh, a great job at handling the situation and and just turning everything around, uh, making it positive for everyone, including me and Sonali. So, um, I I I I don't know what the reservation for you was in terms of talking about. Um, your voice. I read your bio clearly, and I, I've been to your bio a number of times. So I know who you are. Um, I know you're from Ohio, but I don't know exactly about the the voice that you keep saying is a minority voice and over, overlooked and ignored. Because to me, you're someone who is so outspoken. Um, you know, if you ever go into a room, I I, I live with you clearly. But if I, I ever the other <laughs> people with you, you know, you're always the one who is engaging in conversation. You're always the one who is being listened to. You're always the one who is orchestrated in a conversation or some kind of thought. So when you say that you talk about your minority voice not being heard or being overlooked or ignored, where does that come from exactly? What's that mean?
1: Yeah, so um, growing up in Ohio was an interesting experience. Uh, we were one of a very few number of, um, we were one of very few families that were people of color, that were not white, really. Um, and we had like a, a large, not a large, but we had a, quite a few families um, that were of um, Arab descent. But being Indian, we were really in the minority and not being white, we were really in the minority. And so, um, you know, I struggled a lot when I was in high school with the fact that I'm not a white person. Um, I had just a lot of self-hate and a lot of doubt and a lot of just real ugliness towards myself because I just wanted to be like Samantha and Kelly and Ryan and all these people who just felt like life came just so much easier for them because they looked like everyone else, right? And they came from families where their traditions were American traditions. Whereas I came from a family where my parents spoke a different language. We ate a different kind of food. We dressed differently when we went to holidays and events like that. Our holidays and events were different. Um, And I just felt really othered all the time. And then there were some like racial things that happened at school and things that people said that were really like terrible. And so, um, you know, I just, I, I think I, given my personality and the way my relationship with my parents and all that, I kind of internalized all of that um, uh, difference into a way where I was able to just be like very self-deprecating and um, just really hateful towards myself. And so um, part of that struggle was that I never felt like I could express anything that I wanted to express. I never felt that there was a space for me to speak actively or on my own behalf. Um, also growing up in, in in a traditional Indian household with a father who just kind of like dictated everything um, was an interesting, we don't, I mean, I could spend like six hours talking about the relationship I have in my family, but you know, that was an interesting space to, to live in. And so I often felt like I didn't have anywhere to put my voice. Like I didn't, I wasn't able to express how I felt because I couldn't clearly understand how I felt. And I, and, and I think I knew at a young age that like self-hatred was not the right way. Right. And so, um, I felt really invisible. And I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people when they think about me, because I am so talkative And I will talk to anyone and that comes from a place of like just feeling uncomfortable with awkward silence, which is something I'm really working on. Just like sitting in the moment without having to like control a conversation or start a conversation or anything like that. Um, And I think, you know, what you said about coming into a room and seeing me talking is that I have these like hot button issues and I can't even hear anyone else when I'm talking about the hot button issues. I mean, you've definitely been on the receiving end of this, Sean. And so, um, you know, I'm just, I think for me in trying to develop a voice, I just like have not, I haven't quite perfected what that looks like for myself. Like, what does it mean? How do I balance it? How do I give other people the space to speak? How do I, um, feel comfortable um, because, you know, we talk about this all the time. Like I can be really for, um, forthright with what I believe. And then I'm like the next half hour, I'm like super apologetic. I'm feeling super guilty for however I felt and how did it impact anyone else? And, dah, dah, dah. and I think I like have a lot of issues with empathy. Um, and my, my therapist would agree that I have a, like an empathy disorder. But <laughs> um, And so I think I'm just trying to figure out that And growing up, I didn't know how to even navigate that. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know how to even approach that. Um, And so I've learned a lot through therapy. I I do EMDR trauma therapy, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy, which is this very specific kind of therapy that addresses trauma. and, And it's really been helpful to me. Um, in creating a space to understand that invisibility and like realize where it's real and where it's like self-constructed.
0: So Mm. that was a lot. (laughs) No, it's, it's perfect. And it it just, it gives me more insight as to why words are so important to you. Um, You know, I, I, we're going to talk about your law career in a little bit, but I know that for most lawyers, um, speaking is the the main uh, unit that you guys use to communicate about your clients, about um, to give a, a voice or to use your voice for other people. Um, and every lawyer that I've met and the ones we had on the show are very, very, uh, I wouldn't say talkative, but very, very focused on using words carefully and using the words to make sure that the words are powerful in, in the way that they um Choose right words to use and what have you, so it's just interesting to me that you know for you, the voices and the use of language uh, can be so powerful in a positive way and also can be so deprecating to you sometimes um, and you know i, I I've, I've seen your journey with that and I, I've seen you um, on great days or not so great days, but you know I, like you said it, everything's about a process and the journey, and you know as long as you, you're taking that journey forward, you know you're always going in the right direction so um it's interesting to me, though, and I want to know for your and the, the pre-law track that you chose and why you decided to use this, this voice, right? To use your voice for minorities, um, knowing that or well, maybe not knowing, but with this this situation, or this, this past that you've had in terms of recognizing that language and voices for you were were an issue in terms of your personal life. How do you, you use this voice to help others?
1: So um, I think that that and I don't mean to get like super preachy here, but I think that that was like from God. Like, I think God use, is using this job as a way for me to not only help others, but to like help myself. And so um, for me, the the thing that drew me to pre-law was that I was really interested in the way that our world is constructed and, and um, sort of I was really interested in the social construct, right? And how are we supposed to interplay with other people and how are, what is acceptable behavior and what is unacceptable behavior? Because in my life and in my, in my home, there were things that would happen that I think would be deemed unacceptable behaviors in America, but totally fine in India, right? And so we're not, I don't know if they're totally fine in India, but they're just much more acceptable in India. Mm. And so I sort of started going I, that was what really drew my interest. And from, from a very young age, everyone that I met was like, you're very opinionated. You, you negotiate a lot. I see all, a lot of these characteristics in Sonali, which is funny. Um, and so people were always telling me, Oh, you should be a lawyer. You should be a lawyer. I mean, it didn't, it didn't hurt that my dad was like, you could be anything you want out of these five things. And lawyer was on the on the list. Right. So um you know i think i i was sort of like steered in that direction by my family and and um also i think god was steering me in that direction and i had a real interest in learning more about the way our world is constructed and then what drew me to law specifically is that laws are what tell us what we're what we can and can't do right there are laws in place that tell us how we can um how we can invest our money right how fast we can go in our car how We can, what, what, um, what's acceptable in a, in a domestic partnership, right? Um, when we can see our kids, when we can't see our kids, all these kinds of things. And so, um, I was really interested in that. And then the more and more I started to learn about that, and this isn't rocket science or anything, but the more and more I started to learn about that, the more I realized like, wow, it's really only white men, white people, but mostly white men who are at the table making these decisions. Why? Right. And I know why. Right. Because of our history and all that. But like I wanted to change that. I wanted to be at the table because if you're going to tell me, my kids, my family, how we're going to live, then I want to be at that table making those decisions. So for a minute, I thought about going into politics, but I don't think I have the. At the time when I was younger, I, I just didn't believe in myself enough to do that, to have like a a spotlight like that, or to be in a position of power like that. I remember when I was an undergrad, my professor was really trying to get me to do this congressional internship. And I was just too scared. I was like, I can't do it. He like hooked it all up for me. He was going to be in Washington, DC and all this stuff. And I was just like, "Mm, I'm not smart enough for this. No. Which is why I think like thoughts are, can be so detrimental. Right. Um, Then I thought about going uh, like you read in my bio, my, my, um intention in going to law school was to do civil rights law because I felt like, um, you know, there's our rights are so important and the rights of um, black and brown people and poor people are so important and they're trampled on the most. And it's the easiest to to harm those communities. And so as a brown person, I was like, I want to be in this fight. But then in law school, I just realized criminal law was really where I was. And even before that, I mean, when I was in undergrad, um, my senior thesis was on the disciplinary function of prison architecture and how uh, prisons are built and developed to maintain social order, to uh, marginalize people. And it's the architecture that there's a thought process behind the architecture architecture and how you can control a person's behavior and keep them really control their thoughts in a a lot of ways, right? By how big a room is, how many paces somebody can pace from side to side in a room and all that kind of stuff. And that kind of led me to learn more about criminal law and criminal defense. And then going to Northeastern was so incredible because I was able to do co-ops, which are internships, and I was able to really learn more about My interest in criminal law, but you know, one of the biggest and driving forces—I feel like I'm rambling. I'm sorry, but one of the driving forces for me in terms of doing criminal law is that criminal law really tells you what behavior is punishable by law, what's acceptable and what's not, and what's not acceptable is punishable by by law, which typically means either a fine or, and most often, jail time, right? even a violation of the law which means you're not guilty of committing an actual crime just violating the law is up to 15 days in jail and our liberty our ability to run free throughout the world is something that's like it's like a cornerstone of our principles in this country right it's like it's like it's the cornerstone of faith right freedom is the cornerstone of faith right we believe in our in our faith we believe so we can be free, right? <laughs> like, and so to me, that really was like the draw and the pull was that if people are going to be making decisions about who gets to walk the earth free, who gets to be with their families, who gets to sleep in their own bed at night, I want to be there being a part of that conversation. And and so I, that's why I was drawn to criminal law.
0: That's fascinating. Um, you know, I, I met you in and- and you were just about to graduate. Um, spring from Massachusetts, you were in that town. And and I remember the passion that you had uh, then, and it's the same passion that you have now. That that same vigor has not changed in the last, you know, 15, 16 years. Um, and you can hear it in your voice. You can, you can see it when everyone talks to you. You can hear it whenever you're, uh, you know, talking to a client or just, talking, you know, whatever you're doing, it's there. You have a, a knack for this. This is where you're supposed to be. Um, Two questions for you, though. The one question or I have is for you is that you mentioned you did not want to get into politics because um, power, right? You didn't think you were going to be ready to do that kind of thing. But I feel like where you are now, you have more power. You have more say. You can do more things than what politicians can sometimes do. And most politicians, if I'm not mistaken the ones that I've, I've looked at and seen, most of them were lawyers. They've done some kind of law work, you know, in the past. So um, it's interesting to me that you say that you wouldn't want to be a politician, but anyone who's been a politician has been down the same road that you are traveling down. Um, do you see politics at some point in time in your future? <laughs>
1: um, so I think at the time when I decided that when like I was very young, when I was like, I'm not ready to do politics. I'm not, I don't have enough. I just didn't feel smart enough. I didn't feel like I had the the language. I didn't feel like I had the credentials. I didn't feel like I had the confidence. I didn't feel like any of those things. And I think at the time, because that was you know many, many, many years ago, um, that was sort of like the messaging of politics was that you had to be this like white wasp, right? To be in politics. And our lens of politics has changed tremendously. And I think like AOC, who I like, look up to and think is incredible is like a really good example of that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? She is like she didn't go to law school. She was really passionate. She's incredible, she's brilliant, and she's she's making changes and and having an impact and changing sort of the trajectory of politics. I don't know if politics is in my future. I want to be more involved in what's happening in communities. And and I I think that you know, I do think that there is power in the work that I do, um, but it's very individual, right? So like, it it impacts the person that I'm representing. So as a criminal defense attorney, right? Like I, and I know you had a couple of criminal defense attorneys on before. So I think your audience knows a little bit about this. But um, as a defense attorney, right? Like I meet a client after they've been charged with something, and then my job is to help them and defend them in their case, right? And so in my role, I'm able to do a lot of empowerment, which is why, you know, when you're talking about voice, I think what drew me to this was not speaking for other people, because I think when I first started doing criminal defense, I, I really believe like a lot, my, I need to use my voice for the voiceless and that I've like, I've grown past that because I think every single client I represent has a voice, right? It's just about whether or not they've been given the space to use their voice. And unfortunately when it comes to criminal law, your voice can be used against you. So you're often muted for your own protection, or at least that's what you're told, right? So a lot of my job becomes not being a voice for the voiceless, but using my voice as a means for speaking for a person who hasn't been given the right to speak, right? Um, Or the opportunity to speak. And so, um, you know, I think that I'm able to do that in this job in a way um, uh, by helping clients get the best outcome for their cases, by connecting clients with resources, by just being a person who they might not otherwise think, think gives a crap. Right. Um, and just like using my little space that I have to empower um, other people. And so um You know, I do think that I am able to, like, have some effectiveness in that and, like, and, but, you know, again, like, I'm very careful because I'm not anybody's savior. I'm not trying to save anyone. I think that is so, that is not my job. Um, That is just so patronizing to people who are in the system, um, who are in the criminal justice system. I think that's just such an unfair way of looking at it. So I'm, I'm very careful of that. And I realize, and I recognize that a lot, a lot, if not all of my work that I do is on the backs of black and Brown people, mostly and poor people, right. All of my clients are indigent. And so everything that I'm doing, I'm doing like on their back. Right. And so I'm very much aware of that. And I think about that a lot because I think it's easy to sort of get in your head and think, Oh my God, I did this great thing. I I'm amazing. I did this. And it's like, no, right? Like this is a person's life and and I I have the choice to leave this job. My clients often have zero choice in their contact with the police because of where they live, because they're over-policed, because of the way they look, because of mass incarceration, because of racism, because of all of that, right? Because of over, like, oh, because of, um, you know, like the, 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 the nature of our police departments around this country. And so I just think, um, you know, I try to, I, I appreciate you saying that there's power in the work that I do. I do think that there is. I think the power is in empowering those who have been affected and impacted by the system, mm. right? Getting those people to a place, getting my clients, I shouldn't say those people, because I, I when I say those people, what I mean is the people who are targeted and impacted by our criminal justice system, right? Getting them to a place, um, wherever the place is that they need to be, whether it's, uh, you know, going to trial because they want their day in court. Right. And understanding that they're willing to take whatever the consequences are or getting them a treatment program or getting them housing or trying to help get a job, like all that kind of stuff. So, um, going back to your original question about politics, I don't know. Um, I think I am a very advocacy-based person, and so I'm not sure that diplomacy is really my jam. But you never know, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. so <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, again, the passion that you have is unquestionable. And um, I, I, I do want to say that you know we've had some lawyers on the show. We've had two defense attorneys on the show in the past, but no one has mm-hmm. a holistic approach to to looking at clients and looking at their caseloads. What does that mean? I mean, I've heard it talked about in terms of health and other other facets, but I've never heard anyone apply it to the law. What's that look like for you, applying a holistic approach to the way you see your clients?
1: So it's funny because the word holistic in the law has been like super overused, but I think it's important because. It means that you're not just looking at the the case itself, right? You're looking at the bigger picture of your who your client is within their community, what their struggles are, what's their family relationship like, and all of that. And you know, where I work, Brooklyn Defender Services, we're I'm very fortunate because my office is has a lot of resources, and we have a lot of um, ability to um, service clients' needs like in a, in a, in a more comprehensive way. Right. So, you know, sometimes I'll like, I'll have a client who's charged with, uh, a gunpoint robbery, let's just say, right. It's a young person. They're charged with a gunpoint robbery, but well, there's just so much more to it than the gunpoint robbery. Right. Why does this person, what, 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 Obviously there's the investigation part. Was it my client? Who else was there? What are the facts? What is there video, blah, 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 DNA, all that stuff, right? That's a big part of my job, obviously. Then there's the other part. Who is this young person? What does this young person need? How did this young person get to this place? Um, is this a, is this a case involving gangs? What does that actually mean? Because our uh, country uses the word, the word gang to mean a lot of things, right? Like, it's typically incredibly negative. It's meant to be that like, you know, young people who don't care about life or anything like that. And they go around just ravaging communities. What is, what is this person's situation? What what brought them to the place where they are? What's their family life like? What's their educational life like? What's their physical life like? What's their mental life like? And then creating a plan to get at, all of those things, as much as we can, right? Like, cause we're not, we're not going to be able to fix everything for everybody. And we don't have those kinds of resources. I mean, I wish our country cared more about mental health, mm-hmm. right? The therapy that I receive that is, that is, that has been, you know, life changing for me, literally life changing for me is so expensive. And I'm very fortunate that I don't have any other medical expenses right now that I can spend all of our money in our HSA to go to therapy. Right. (laughs) Um, But I, you know, most, I'm not the only person who's experienced trauma in their life. Right. Mm. Many, many, many of my young clients have experienced trauma, whether it's, you know, having, seeing domestic violence, watching somebody get harmed police brutality, whatever it is, right. Poverty, all of that. There's a lot of harm and trauma. And so, um, you know, I wish that we were able to provide all of the services that, that every client needs, but we do our best to try to have a, to take a comprehensive look at what a client needs in my office. um, Most clients are connected with most, most clients are connected with an investigator most clients are or like at least with their case is connected with an investigator clients are connected with a social worker clients are if there's an immigration issue they're they're connected with an immigration attorney if there's a housing issue we can connect them with a the housing attorney if there's an issue with their job we can connect them with a the civil attorney let's say they have an issue with their family we can connect them with the family defense attorney there's family defense Um, uh, um, parent coordinators and people who will, in my office, who will help the parents when they're dealing with ACS or dealing with the school or dealing with whatever. We have education attorneys in our office for clients, and those education attorneys also help parents to understand and navigate the madness of the DOE, right? And so that's what we mean when we say holistic approach. And I think I really developed this skill way back in undergrad when I worked with my professor to create law and social thought, which was an interdisciplinary program, which is where we looked at law and we looked at social thought and what do we think about law and what do we think law is? And instead of just having pre-law classes, we were taking political science classes, like political theory and all that kind of stuff. You're also taking like a social work class. You're also taking, you know, uh, um, a criminal justice class. You're also taking an international class. Class, an international business class, like all the different ways in which our world, the law intersects with all the different parts of our world. You know, one of the best classes I took when I was an undergrad was a social work class called deviant behavior. And we learned about what behaviors are determined to be deviant. So, for example, when I was in college, my, the topic that I studied was casual sex because at the time when I was in college, casual sex was like such a faux pas, right? It was like this horrible, awful thing. Times are changing, right? And so how do we get to a place where that changes, where that behavior is no longer deemed deviant, or is it deemed deviant in certain places and not deviant in other places? And how do you explore that? And then how do we enforce those beliefs? Is it through law? Is it through you know, like cancel culture? Is it through like all these other things? And so, you know, I think that sort of how we all interplay with everything is super important. And I think like, you know, you mentioned medicine, right? Like people who, COVID is a great example of this. You weren't just looking at this virus and how did this scary virus impact the body, but you were looking at like how does it impact communities and what does that mean about communities and the funding in communities? And what does that mean about, you know, the, the money that we put here and the government, the government involvement here and the, and the way in which in us, you know, racism impacts this and the way in which, um, you know, uh, um, classism impacts all of that. Right. And so like that, that sort of interplay between everything is what we mean when we when we say like we take a holistic approach or a comprehensive approach to um, to representation, because it's just so important, because what's the point of me fixing your case if tomorrow you're going to or like, you know, when I say fixing your case, like. Let's say you're charged with stealing something from the dollar store, if you don't have money or a job or whatever, if that's the reason why you were stealing, you're just going to go back to stealing again. Like what we need, we need more than just like a little band aid right. to fix this one little thing, right? And so that's what I mean when I say holistic or comprehensive
0: yeah. representation. I was gonna say, yeah, band aid is the exact word I was thinking about in my mind, and now I've never heard any lawyer explain their particular role in the bigger picture like that. But it makes complete sense, and I think that if more people who are in your field. Uh, not just at your job, but you know other jobs across the country had that same mentality. Uh, we'd be better at, at doing what we're doing for sure. Um, I do have a question though. I know that for a small stint, um, and I, I feel the advocacy in you. It's 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 overwhelming in a positive way. But I do know that at some point in time, uh, the new school was something that you were doing for a while. You came to New York, and um, you were not doing advocacy work. You were doing more research and looking at. Uh, behind the scenes, uh, what was happening in terms of our communities? What sparked that? And do you feel like where you are now is where you're more fit to be, or do you feel like advocacy was is just a temporary thing for you?
1: So um, it's interesting because a lot of people ask me that question, like, "What you left the law? What happened?" Uh, I was in Springfield, Massachusetts, and I remember I was I had this case, I was ready getting ready to go to trial, and it was this this awful case where my client was um he was a victim of a shooting and when the police um stopped him or when they came to like address his wounds right uh and the shooting the police were applying pressure to his wound because they were trying to get him to to basically snitch on who shot him because they believed that he was gang involved and so they kept the EMS out of um, the the apartment for like 15 minutes. There was documentation of it for like 15 minutes or so while they were pushing on his bullet wound, trying to get him to confess. And when he wouldn't confess, they searched the apartment. Wasn't even his apartment. Wasn't even where he lived. He just like stumbled into an apartment um, because he was getting shot at, right? And they searched the apartment and they found a bunch of like ammunition and some drugs in the apartment and they charged him with it. And so I was outraged. And I think most people who hear that would be outraged. Right. And so I got this case ready for trial and I was ready and I'm like, okay, we're going to talk about all these, like, we're going to talk about the police and we're going to talk about over policing and we're going to talk about this happened in a, in a housing projects. Right. And so we're going to talk about all of this stuff. And, um, my, many people that I worked with and not because they're bad people, but because they know knew the community where we were going to pool our jury. Right. We're like, you can't bring up those questions during your jury selection or during your trial because your jury's not going to understand those things. Right. And in, in Springfield where I was a large percentage of the jury pool was pooled from a neighboring town, which was part of the community that was incredibly white very wealthy, and didn't really understand what was happening in Springfield, Massachusetts itself, the city itself. And so, you know, it was easy sort of to look down upon the the the, the grime of what was happening in, because I've I heard that several times, right? The griminess of what was happening in Springfield. And so my you know, my supervisors were like, listen, if you're, do you run the risk, if you bring all this up that they're not going to, your jury's not going to see it. And they're going to, um, find your client guilty of, of having the drugs. Right. Which I was like, "What in what world? And I was super young and I was super new at the job. And, um, I went to my client and I talked to him about it. And the, the, you know, the DA had made an offer in the case and, you have to bring every offer to your client because ultimately it's your client's decision on what they want to do. And I talked to my client about what, he, what the offer was and he said that he wanted to take the offer and my heart broke. And the reason why he wanted to take the offer is because he agreed with the other people that the that the jury jurors wouldn't understand the dynamics, the racial dynamics, the police dynamic, all of that the injustices that were happening to poor communities in Springfield. And all they were going to see was ammunition and drugs and think that he was somehow involved and that he was shot. Right. They were going to think like, Oh, how does this person get shot unless they're somehow involved in something bad. And it kind of broke me. And I was like, I need to get out of this job. I can't do this. I didn't have any other than my like besties that I had made that I was, that I had in Springfield at my job. Like, I didn't know anyone in the community. I didn't know. So I was like, I want to, I want to figure out how I can talk about these things in the courtroom or do some kind of policy work to change this or something. So I looked at various um, law, sorry, um, grad schools around the nation. And I realized I wanted to understand the history of whiteness. And so the new school had a program in historical studies, which is studying history and how history is developed. And this really great professor, and she studied whiteness. And so I applied and I got all my stuff together within 10 days, which is insane. And I got accepted. And I remember there was a little note on my acceptance letter from like the dean that was like, You should be proud of all of the work that you've done. We can't wait to have you. And I was like, Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> and I got a scholarship and all the stuff. I took out some loans also. And I went and I found myself freaking out every day because I, like I said, I'm an advocate and I felt like I was sitting on my hands every day. Cause I just wanted to like, I didn't understand the concept of sitting or sitting down and talking about theory. I was like, what we need to get out there. We need to be marching. We need to do this. We need to talk to that person. And they're like, no, 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 We're going to talk about these scholars and we're going to talk about how history is about. I was like, I can't do this. And so I did really well. I got really good grades. Um, and I just, after my first year, I was like, I, I'm good. I can't, I'm not doing this anymore. And so I studied for the bar in New York um, because I had only taken the bar in Massachusetts at that point. And so I took time off. I temped. Um, I did horrible little temp jobs here and there to be able to pay my rent. Um, and I uh, studied for the bar and praise God I passed and i was like i'm going back to being a lawyer i'm i'm not meant to do this other thing this policy work i can't or not even policy work i'm not meant to do to be in academia like that i just can't do it mm. so i it was a little it was it was interesting i learned a lot about whiteness and so that's been helpful in these in these last couple like couple years or couple months really where you know we there's been so much happening there's like a racial reconciliation that's been happening in our country finally. Um, and so that's been really helpful, but it's, it was just a weird little, not, I shouldn't say weird. It was a very planned like, you know, in, in 10 days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it was, it was, I don't regret it. I regret the student loan part, but I don't regret, um, doing it. I just, uh, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, but I'm proud of myself that I tried and I stuck my self out there and I got accepted. And yeah, so.
0: I mean, the fact that you were doing something that you knew you wanted to do, stepped aside to do something that was going to help you, you thought, to further the work, um, recognize that that was not the case, and then went around and passed another bar in another state. Um, you know, most people can barely pass the first bar, but you passed two bars. That to me is incredible. Um, by itself. And, and you know, I, I, was, I saw you around that time, clearly. So I saw the diligence you put towards that. And I remember walking you actually to the bar exam in New York and, and, and the excitement and the nervousness you had when you were taking it and when you passed, which I knew you were going to. Um, the fact that you were able just to hop back into a city you didn't really know or have much experience with and make that the place where you continue your passion. Uh, that, to me, just speaks volumes of of someone who really is determined to uh, make a difference in the world. And, you know, you talked a lot about race, and clearly that is always been a hot ticket, but even now more prevalent with the current elections and our current state in this country and Black Lives Matter. And your work is basically involved in that every single day. You know, we're, we're a biracial family. Clearly our daughter, Sonali, is... What? You skip (laughs) those who don't know who are not watching on YouTube. (laughs) Um, you know, my family is West Indian descent, and we just found out based on our ancestry that we may have some Native American roots as well. But you know, mostly African American, Caribbean. Your family is from India, clearly. So we're raising a biracial daughter in Brooklyn, which is one of the most progressive places in the world, but also one of the most interestingly uh, uh, confusing places because it's a melting pot for everyone to be here. And you know, race is something that comes up every single day. Now in my job, race is totally different because you know we're not talking about racial issues. We're just talking about people coming together for healing purposes. But in your job, you're talking about those those hard topics. So it's talking about those things that are on the news every single day and looking at the trends that are happening and the biases that are happening. How do you, given all that you've, you've learned, right? Advocacy work, even at the new school and what have you, and your experience coming from Ohio, living in Springfield, now being in New York, how do you give your clients the best chance to be heard represented in a system that is already fundamentally biased?
1: Uh, well, I wish I had the answer to that. <laughs> It's it's like a work in progress. I think for me, um, I think one of the biggest things is listening. Um, I when I was when I first became an attorney and I worked at CPCS, we had a training where we had to listen to a partner tell like a traumatic thing that happened to them in their life. And then we, then that partner had to share what our experience was with the group and, um, and you had to do the same for your partner. Right. So it was an, it was a very interesting, um, exercise because you, you sort of had to come to terms with your own angst, your own biases, your own spin that you might put on something. So, um, if you're uncomfortable with race, you might not be willing to outright say things about race, but your client might really want that, right? Your client might really want you to talk about racism, talk about how the cop constantly targets him or her and all of that. And, you know, this job is difficult because as the lawyer, you're you're tasked with the strategy, Right. You're tasked with knowing what's the best strategy, what's the best way to approach a case, what when should you reveal information and when should you not reveal information, what information should you reveal and what information should you hold close. Um, And, you know, a lot of that is muddled with race. Right. And a lot of that is it's not like you can just be like, okay, so now we're going to pull in race. It's like it's all mixed in there all over. And so. You know, what I've learned is it's about knowing your audience, knowing who you're talking to, the way to say things to certain people. I am not at all proclaiming to be great at this. It's a learning process. I am learning. You know, I there's a particular judge that I appeared before who um, makes things personal. And I didn't, I was getting so I was getting pissed, like really mad, like really mad, like gritting my teeth mad, like holding my hands and fists mad, which was just making that judge more angry. And so, and, and I didn't realize it until after, until actually I was talking to one of my supervisor, my, my boss actually about it. And, she, and my boss was like, she was baiting you. Right. And you, you walked right into it. And so it's about, you know, it takes time to get, to to understand that, that's why they call it a practice of law, because you're always practicing, and so you know just paying attention, learning that no you know there are things you can be prepared for. It's funny because I I sometimes ask God like why this job. I'm the most anxious person. I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop, and this is the job where you literally don't know what's going to happen next, like you can prepare 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 for trial you don't know whether you're actually going to start is your client going to take a plea what's going to happen what new evidence are they going to drop on you at the last minute is there going to be a witness that you didn't know about is the witness going to say something you didn't think about did you forget to read something there's so much paperwork did you get to everything you know there's all this, ah, there's all this like stress about it and so um you know the one the one thing that i think it, going back to your question is like listening Understanding what's important to your client, understanding how you can get out the stuff that's important to your client, understanding how you can weave in major topics like racism, poverty, inequality, um, uh, uh, profiling, all that kind of stuff into your work in a way where it doesn't feel like you're beating someone over the head with it, unless you think beating someone over the head with it will work right? And so it's that, it's learning that. And the big thing is, and this is why I feel so thankful for the office that I'm in and being a public defender, um, is that you you learn from other people. You learn from other people's styles. You learn from the way you learn by sharing and, and picking up things from one person and realizing that this person's style is not my own. You know, one of the most effective lawyers in my office is this woman um, who literally her, her, the way that she approached, like she's the most prepared person. She's so she's brilliant, but she kind of like approaches cases. Like, why are we here? This is such an absolute waste of time. And even in front of a jury, she sort of takes that approach and it works for her. It's incredible to watch. Right. And she does incredible work for clients. I could never do that. I could I could, that's, I could, never take on that style, but that style really works for her and she's incredible at it. And so, you know, just like learning and developing and then not being afraid to tackle those things. Like you, you specifically brought up race, right? Not being afraid to tackle those big topics, learn more about them, understand them and figure out how, it might not be that I'm bringing up race in front of the jury, right? It might be that I'm bringing up race to the DA well before we ever get there, right? It might be that I bring up race to the to the, to the the DA and they're not receptive of it. So I go to their supervisor or I bring it up um, in front of the judge or I do bring it up in jury selection, right? And I don't hammer it in during the trial, but I bring it back in my summation. Like there's a lot of ways to do it. And you said something earlier about people in my profession doing this more. You know, I think that there are, a lot of people across the country who, a lot of public defenders, a lot of criminal defense attorneys, but mostly public defenders who really do this. I think we get a bad, we get a bad rap from TV shows, from like law and order. I'm sorry. I don't know that I've ever, unless I've worked out on an agreement uh, where I'm sending my client into the room with the DA to admit everything, I've never sat in a room like these defense attorneys on law and order with the DA and been like, just talk, just, just tell them everything. Like that's just completely unrealistic. And this, like, you know, this public defenders, we are, we have a lot of cases, right. And we are stretched thin, but when you're on, but, but one thing that I want to say, and this is for all my defenders out there is like, we bust our butts. You know, I want to use other words, but this is a non cursing place. But we bust our butts to, uh, to like provide every client with really, really good representation. And especially when it's a trial situation, we sort of like tune every, you know, this, you've been on the receiving end of this. We tune everything else out, family, everything, everything is out. We're focused on this because it's a passion for mo- many of us, for most of us. Right. And we believe in, in, in addressing the inequalities. We believe in creating holistic, uh, comprehensive spaces for, for cases. We believe in that kind of stuff. And so I think that that's part of it is, is figuring out that practicing that always getting better at that always learning, you know, it's hard because you're learning a lot of times in someone's case, Mm. right. And it affects their case and mistakes that you make can impact your client's life. And that is, that is a painful reality, but it's about just like working your butt off. That's why I always answer my phone, except for this last week when I've been on vacation, which has been very, very hard for me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and this is why I call you a superhero. Cause uh...
1: <laughs> no, but I don't, I think it's just, cause I think people in, in a lot of professions do that. Right. Like for example, Sean, you're on vacation, but yesterday we went skiing and since I haven't worked out in seven months, Uh, My arms were on fire from the little bit of skiing that we did. And I was like, please, please. And you didn't hesitate to like give me um, a massage on my arms and show me whatever stretches to do to make my to make me feel better. Right. Like if you're passionate about what you do, you're not going to feel burdened. You do have to take your time off. Right. But you're not going to feel it's not a superhero thing. It's about using your. Your gifts and using your talents and using the space. My my law school professor said you have limited life energy. Figure out what you want to use your life energy for and then dedicate your life energy to that. Don't waste your life energy doing all this other randomness that you don't need to do. Spend your life energy doing the thing that brings you that fulfillment. And so, you know, I, I don't think it's I appreciate you saying that I'm superwoman. I wish I looked like superwoman. Um, but it is really, Sean? I saw that face.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> But, you know, I think it's about just, like, being passionate and giving your life energy. And I have really good role models. Like, you're a really good role model for that. Your mom is an incredible role model. My dad is an incredible role model. My mom, my mom didn't have a college degree. She didn't have, you know, she worked at Chase Bank and then they moved and she lost her job. But her passion was our family, right? And creating, always creating for our family, always being like a, a solid rock for our family. And she gave all of I mean she gives, she's she's still with us, right? She'll love her. She gives all of her life energy. I look at my sister who was on this show before, so cute. I love her. Um and she gives all of her work energy to this job that I still don't understand despite her being on your show and explaining it. Um, and then she gives all the rest of her life energy to her family. So I think it's I think that's what it's about, right?
0: Yeah, I I hear that. I hear that. And shout out to your mom, your dad, your sister, clearly. uh, Everyone from Ohio. Uh, And, you know, it's funny because I say superhero because you do so many things. And literally because we could be in a car driving and you'll see something on the street, someone being either arrested, pulled over. Or something, and you'll say, "Stop the car!" <laughs> I'm like, wait, what are you, stop the car. We talking about? And I know you want to hop out. You want to hop out there and save the day, or you know, give your words or or share your expertise. That's why I call you a superhero because not that you can't do this thing, or you're doing something that's amazing. It is amazing, clearly. But you're always on. You're always ready. You're always ready to, to like you said, block everything out and make sure that you know you're helping someone have a better voice. You're helping someone navigate a situation you're helping someone who may be in a dark place uh see some kind of light in the tunnel um and that's why I, that's why I say it also because public defender sounds like you know you're a like, an avenger. <laughs> like an avenger exactly and you know to be honest we had a couple of lawyers on here clearly but I had to save you on for season two because I got to save the best for first not for last all right hey. that's why I had you on this time um, last question before the break, you know, I, I, clearly I know you're of South Asian descent, right? I know your family's from India. Um, and it, it, I'm not gonna lie to you, you caught me off guard when we first met, um, because a lot of people talk about race, yes, your beauty, first of all, of <laughs> oh, shut up. um, but you know, you, you, you were so passionate about race and a lot of minorities are passionate about race, clearly, um. And I'm passionate about race, but you, you, you—a different knack was it was there, like a different perspective was there, a different tenacity was there. Um, and and I'm just curious, you know, I've known you now for 16 years. The work that you do is is phenomenal. Um, and I'm I'm sure because you've told me your clients are always kind of thrown off by you when they first meet you as well. Um, how do you feel your clients see you in Brooklyn, South Asian woman fighting the fight? Um. How do they see you and what's what's their initial uh, response to your passion?
1: So, um, you know, I am a brown person, uh, but I know that I am not the brown person that people typically think of when they say black and brown, right? Um, And I know that I have like an incredibly privileged space in our racial dichotomy, um, in part because I I'm not in that black and white dichotomy, right? There is no space for me in that. And even in the black brown versus white dichotomy, I'm not in there, which is why I think I am, I, it's so, it it, it resonates so much with me is because I feel like I'm like, where do I, what do I, what do I do? Where do I fit in? Which, where do I feel more comfortable? All of that. Those are like my own life struggles. Um, I think when it comes to my clients, I think, you know, I, I, I don't want to speak for them. I could just share some experiences that people have said, like a lot of people don't, some, some clients have didn't expect that I would be so passionate about race. Um, Some I've had, I had uh, this client's mother go off on me one day about um, how I knew nothing about racism, how I, her, her son, was a black man who was accused of a crime and I knew nothing. And I was like, okay, yeah, I hear you. You know, I understand. I'm not, I'm like a, you know, I'm, but I'm not a white person. And, and I, she's like, it doesn't matter. Um, And then um, I was actually at her, uh I was doing an investigation. So I was at her house. And then you came to pick me up from her house. And she was like, why did you have your man come here? It's not safe or something. And I was like, it's okay. And then she kind of like looked out the window and saw you. And she's like, you're married to a black man. And then like everything changed. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really, right? (laughs) that doesn't exactly, but okay. Um, And so, you know, I think people are not, I think there are a lot of South Asian people who are really, um, who care about race, talk about race, know much more about race than I do, um, are in the fight. You know, they're they're allies, they're fighting their own fight. There's a lot of racism in my community as well, right? Um, I think for me, just injustice is something that is so hard for me. And that's because of my trauma history. Um, And unfairness is something that is so hard for me. And so, injustice and unfairness are like the cousins of racism in a way, right? They're like, they're hand in hand with racism. And so, I think it was for me growing up it was really and also like growing up where I grew up where I felt really othered. And it's interesting because I talked to some people that I went to high school with and they're not surprised by the racism but they're they didn't see it or they and I didn't really even see it right like I didn't I couldn't call a spade a spade back in the day right? I mean a kid in my high school told me that he was in the KKK And that he wanted to shoot me and my family on the front porch. And I don't necessarily think I saw that as racism when I was a kid. I just was like, he's an a-hole. Right? And so, I mean, I, I remember crying. I remember feeling bad. But I remember feeling like, oh, this is just another example of how being Indian is terrible. Not necessarily like, wow, Scott is a racist. Right? Like, I didn't think about it that way. So, Um, I think that's why I've been so passionate about it. And I think my clients are caught off guard sometimes, but also we're living in a different world where like, there's this concept of wokeness and whatever. Right. And so like, I think there's an expectation that people are going to be more aware of race and, um, that people are not allowed to hide under a rock anymore and pretend like they don't get it anymore. Um, and I also think it's about like, staying in your lane in a lot of ways, right? Like there's, there are experiences that I will never understand. And there's harm that I have done, even as a, as a person of color to black and brown people that I didn't realize I was doing because of my own discomfort, because of my own place in the, in the racial hierarchy, all of that. And so I, I think just, you know, I think my clients, it's a, it's a, it's a learning experience, I think for, for everyone involved. And there's not one answer to that question. Um, I think some people are surprised. Some people have an expectation that you will, as a public defender who's been doing this work, have, um, some acknowledgement, sensitivity, some knowledge, be knowledgeable about racism. Um, and you know, I'm not, I'm not over here saying that every public defender is like, cares even right but i think there are a lot that that really do and a lot that really spend time like i don't think i'm in some sort of minority here when it comes to that so
0: well said thank you for sharing that um and we're going to probably have another episode at some point during the year just on race by itself because it's such an interesting topic and you know, now that people are actually talking about it across all boards, right, um, it'd be good for us to have a bigger conversation and put on a bigger platform. So I'll have to have you back on that for some point in time for, for that.
1: I would Absolutely. love that. That's great.
0: Uh, if you're just joining us, folks, season two of the more today's show, episode 41. I'm here with my boo, Red Table Talk, uh, with Hemangi <laughs> Pai. She is senior trial attorney for the Homicide Unit at BDS. She is a mother. She's a, a wife. She's a Spartan, a marathoner. And she's also an adjunct professor at BMCC. Now, Sweet, let me know, just tell the people how or why you wanted to do this, right? You just explained that your job is so intense. You're doing so many things. Uh, You know, you you, you have a five-year-old, soon to be six-year-old, you have me. Um, You're doing a thousand things. What would inspire you to hop into a classroom to teach young people? And how effective do you think The classroom setting is to effectuate change?
1: So I just want to say that um, I only taught one class at BMCC and then Corona happened. Um, And well, they offered me another opportunity, but I couldn't do it with my work schedule. And so I'm very, very new to the teaching world. Um, But I think the reason why I wanted to do it is because I, I, in my education, it was my teachers who fueled my passions, right? Like it was issues, but my teachers really helped me to hone in on what I was passionate about. I was so fortunate in undergrad to have an incredible professor who helped me to develop a major, right? At the school. And when I say that, I mean, like he did a lot of, he did all the heavy lifting, but he helped, he allowed me to be a part of that process. And that was incredible because I got to really develop my own journey, my own education journey in undergrad. Um and then uh in law school I had several professors, one of whom uh Professor Susan Maids Rothstein, who like shaped me into the person that I am today with, with my passion. This is that's the same professor who said, um, use your limited life energy, right? And she didn't have to do that. She didn't have to take the time to spend with me, but she did like we went to dim sum, we went to lunch, we did all these great things together. And I think when I, um, you know, just when I think about that, it makes me want to pay it forward. And I, by no means am saying that I'm on the level of these other professors because I'm not, but I wanted to use my energy to hopefully create a space for young people to create their own journey. Right. Um, It was difficult because uh, I had very little time and I was teaching a class during my work day, like during my lunch hours. So it was insane to like rush out from court to go to to the city to teach this class and then rush back to work and have court again and whatever. Um, I wish I had more time. I wish I could have devoted more energy to the class. I was... Really able, though, to get to know a couple of the students and to see when you're that young, and I wanted to work in a community college in particular because I wanted to be able to work with with students that are often overlooked. Obviously, there's a theme here in my life. <laughs> and uh, I think community college are, colleges are amazing. The professors are amazing. They don't have the same resources as large as large colleges. A lot of the students are working. It's like, you know, they're doing this part-time or even full-time with a full-time work schedule. And so I wanted to be able to devote my energy to students who um, are often overlooked. And um, BMCC though, is like, they're incredibly resourced. They have so they're like, it's an incredible, it's, it's great what the opportunities that they have there. Um, And um you know, I was able to meet a couple of students who it's interesting because some of them were impacted by the criminal justice system. Either they had like a friend or a cousin or a brother or a mother or somebody. And I was, was able to understand their space, taking a class. I taught a class on corrections, right. And so about our correctional institutions and anyone who knows me knows that I'm very, very critical of our correctional institutions. And many of the students wanted to be corrections officers. And my job, my, I did not believe that my job was to try to convince them to do something else. It was to get them to think about the nuances of becoming a correctional officer. What are the things to be mindful of? What are the things to think about? How do you balance the need for uh, punishment or do we need punishment at all how do we balance order with law? We have a crazy law and order psycho president, right? What does that actually mean in practically? And so getting these young leaders to think about those kinds of things as they enter into their life journey, I think it was honestly, I think they did more for me than I did for them, um, because like I said before, I can get on a soapbox and go. And so to, to have them like knock me down and be like, that's a stupid thing you just said, Miss Pye, right? And then explain why they thought it was stupid was really humbling and incredible and a really great learning experience. And I hope to do it again. It's just really hard. And I want to just correct something that you said. I'm in the Homicide Serious Crimes Unit. I am not yet homicide certified. Um, I'm working towards that. Uh, it's just really hard have to have a lot of trials under your belt. And the fortunate thing about Brooklyn is that we have a lot of alternatives to incarceration and program, programs and things like that. So we get, we're able to work out good like alternatives for our clients when they're arrested. And so, or when they're charged with a crime. So I don't often get to go to trial, but I'm working my way there. So.
0: <laughs> got it, got it, got it. Now I know your mom, lawyer, wife, teacher, uh, Spartan, uh, you're also an artist. Um, <laughs> I, I, Picasso. I you, you, Picasso. You know, yes, I call you Picasso. That's my name for you. <laughs> I want full credit for that and copyright. Um, <laughs> is the way that you balance everything now through the artistic realm and the baking realm? Or how do you decompress more things that are happening around you every single day?
1: So I, I think I'm still trying to figure that out. Um uh, painting was actually really fun and exciting. Um, I have a problem with follow through, as you know. And so I will start something and I get really like into it. And then I'm like, mm, I'm done. And that's something I'm working on with my therapist. And just like figuring out where that comes from, why there's this like stop, what does it mean about me, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, painting was really fun. Baking was really fun. I think I like the idea of taking nothing and turning it into something right and i'm not sure where that is supposed to go um i am hopeful that in 2021 um i will move in a direction of like still doing that and like painting more um you know one thing that i've realized is that when i i need to do a reevaluation of my life energy and where i'm sp- sp- bending it because I become, I can get really involved in something. And then I become obsessed with watching like Netflix, like a series. Like right now I'm really into Madam Secretary and I can't stop. And so like every, every second that I have, I'm like, I need to watch, so I need to watch the show. I like find myself craving the the watching of the show to like dull my brain or something. And so, um, you know, I just, I'm, I, I'm hoping to be more creative um. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Pray for me. All that stuff.
0: <laughs> All right. Landing fast round now. If you were not an attorney, what would you be doing?
1: Oh, I don't know. Uh, I would maybe I've thought about this a lot, actually. You know, honestly, I think I would love to have a coffee shop that has baked goods that I've made paintings that I've painted <laughs> and talks that, uh, like people come in to do talks and things like advocacy kind of things. And also just like always have a latte.
0: <laughs> <hand>.
1: <laughs> and ultimately, that's what I would love.
0: Okay. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, name one thing you want to start doing in 2021.
1: So in 2021, I want to start caring about my health. Which is a lot for me. And I'm not really sure why it's so hard for me because I'm married to you, uh, but I feel like I just kind of take my health for granted. And even during COVID, like I feel, I feel very much like I felt a lot, like I was supposed to be scared and I just didn't feel scared. Like I, I think about, it's weird. I think about like, what if I found out that I had some, something, Right how would I react to that? Like, I think a lot of people get, feel like they wouldn't, like they, like they know that they would want to be like, want to try to avoid things. And I just don't feel that way. And I don't know if it's because, you know, for i you know, I, I grew up in a really rough place and I had a lot of suicidal ideations and I still struggle with that. I don't know if that's the reason why, if it's like tied to life for me. And I'm just like, Oh, if it's tied to an extension of life, I'm not really that interested. I don't know. Um, But I'm hoping to start caring about my health. And I don't mean like getting skinny. Like I obviously would love that, but like, I mean, just like caring more about what I'm putting in my body, caring more about like, working out and why does this hurt? And why does that hurt? I just sometimes will be like, you know, you know, I like, I refuse to go to the doctor. I like, it was like five years since I went to the dentist and then I went to the dentist and they were like, what is wrong with you?
0: Yeah. <laughs> right? and and like, yeah, Like,
1: yeah, Okay. Uh, yeah. And right. So like, I'm, I'm trying to get better about that. No, I am getting better about that.
0: Good. Cool uh what's one wish if you had one wish to change the world anyway what's the one thing you would wish that you could change in the world
1: oh my gosh okay I think I would want there to be no more unfairness
0: okay and that makes sense given all your history and what you do advocacy work etc yeah that's a great answer
1: I realize that that answer is incredibly nuanced because unfairness to you might be fairness to me, like, right. But like, I just don't want anyone to feel pain, which I also know is insane because pain helps us and it makes us grow. And like, I get it. It's like an important thing, but I just, it hurts my heart a lot to to know that people are in pain and that people... That there's unfairness inflicted upon people, and and like I know that that's part of the plan, or that's what life is, or whatever. But I just it hurts sure me inside.
0: Yeah. Empathy we talked about it earlier. Yeah.
1: Yes, yes, the yeah. disorder I have. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and You know, it's interesting. Our daughter Sonali is very similar in that aspect. She is very sensitive when someone's having their feelings hurt, or she thinks that someone else may be hurt because someone else did something. She's very quick to be like, "Oh, are they okay? I think I hurt Daddy's feelings, Mommy's feelings." So. It's not a bad thing. You know, it's it's good for us to be sensitive to the things of others. Um, and I think if everyone did that, then there'd be less uh, unfairness. You know, there'd be less there'd be less hate, less more love. Um,
1: yeah. But, and I think I, I feel this way because I know that I, you know, our our biggest pet peeves are often our things that we don't like about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I am aware that I can be harmful to other people. I am aware that I um, uh, can be unfair to other people. And I'm aware that sometimes I don't think about how my actions impact others, which is why it is such a pet peeve of mine. So, you know, I am, I, those are things I constantly think about and I'm constantly working on. Cause I just, I want, you know, like I want, I don't think I ever want to lose empathy. It's not something I'm trying to like lose. I just want to get like a little bit more of a handle on it. So I'm not always crying everywhere. I think people on the subway, there are far too many people in New York city as a whole that have seen me crying on the subway with my headphones on. Right. (laughs) Then like, it's kind of next level. So. yeah.
0: (laughs) And the big question, uh, be more today. I have asked everybody on the show, what it means to them. You actually helped me develop and package this thing. So I would love to hear what you believe the phrase Be More Today means to you at this time, 2021.
1: So I always joke and say, Sean believes Be More Today, and I believe in Be More Tomorrow. (laughs) But (laughs) the truth is, I think I, if I'm honest, Sean, I'm really trying to understand what be more today means for me. I don't think it means the same thing for everyone. Um, I think that maybe it's the, what is the be part of it? Like, are you being like being more honest? Are you being more uh, present? Are you being, I, I don't know what it is, but I, I, I thought about this a lot. I've read your book more than once. Um, I've uh, talked to you for endless hours about Be More Today, what it means. I've I've asked you, you know, you said at the beginning that I've helped. I am like your harshest critic, right? I mean, and I don't apologize for that. I feel like I would rather that you hear it from me than anyone else. And so we've talked about this forever and I still am not able to like define it. I know that it's not tomorrow anymore. (laughs) So that's good. Um, But I think I'm still trying to figure out what be more today means for me. I think what I've, what I know is that it doesn't mean the same thing or doesn't have to mean the same thing as what it means to you. And that makes me, because in the beginning I felt like, okay, it means I need to be like working out more. Okay. No, this person is like, be more today means I need to read more. Okay. So that's what be more today means or it means. So I, I think I'm, I, I think it's ever evolving and ever changing and it's what you, what is right for you today. So maybe today I need to be more, uh, kind to Sonali, right. Or be more attentive to you or be more, um, aware of my, uh, what my body is feeling or something like that. And so for me, I think it's not defined, except that it's your my own thing and it can be evaluated every single day, multiple times a
0: day. Yeah, that's, that's fair. I think a lot of people have shared that same sentiment that it's different for everyone um, because we're all different people, you know, and our levels of moreness, if you will, vary, right? For someone working out, they do that already. So they don't have to do that, but they can find something else that can be more, better at or, or more more cognizant of so yeah great answer great answer well done uh any final tips you want to share with aspiring lawyers aspiring artists aspiring bakers <laughs> uh moms who are you know balancing work and trying to keep a five-year-old in check at the same time or anything you want to share with our listeners regarding race and, or your experiences in general
1: uh i really believe that your words, and what you believe about yourself impact everything. If you continue to tell yourself that you're a bad mom, you'll be a bad mom. If you continue to tell yourself that you're a mom who's growing, you'll be a mom who's growing. If you continue to tell yourself that you can't do something, you won't be able to do something. Um, I am desperately working on the words that I choose, because I have a voice in my head that, uh, I have a part inside of me that's always, that's so careful that I might get too big for my bridges or that, that I might, um, be conceited or that I might get in over my head or that I might actually succeed. Right. And so That part is constantly talking negatively to me, constantly. And I'm trying to shut that voice down. Uh, And it's really hard because that voice has been there for a long time. So, I mean, I could be a congressman right now, but that voice, shut that down, right? I am so afraid. Like, I guarantee you, I will listen to this podcast and that voice will be like you are so dumb you sounded stupid when you said this that made no sense you didn't answer this question you he asked you that question you went on for 17 sentences da, 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 da. my advice which i am hoping to take is that when you hear that voice acknowledge it and tell it to shut the hell up <laughs> and and uh I'm you know I'm reading a book that's like not about uh positive mantras or saying something to you I'm not that person I'm not I know I'm like empathy, but I'm not touchy feely in that way. So I feel like it's just about acknowledging it and shutting it down. Just acknowledge it, shut it down, acknowledge it, shut it down. Right. And if there's something that, and I'm trying to learn this for myself, like, for example, I curse a lot. Right. And it's been really hard for me not to curse on the show. I'm not going to lie. But I realize that my cursing is because I don't have another word to use. So I just throw in the F word, right? Or there's not another way for me to articulate it. So I just throw a bunch of curse words together to get across my point. For a long time, I beat myself up over that. But now I'm just like, okay, well, what can I do to change that, right? I can read the dictionary, or use one of those like word power books that I have at home because I have three thousand of them. Or I've realized like Pinterest has a ton of stuff about vocabulary and changing your grammar and your words and things like that. I can t- spend the time in my life energy doing that as opposed to the life energy that I've spent beating myself up for it. And the and the voice can change by saying, "Okay, I hear you. Maybe there was a better way to say that. Here it is. Now shut up, right?" Um, So that's my advice is just like, don't uh, like the thoughts that you have really can impact how you live your life and where you go. And if you're a mom, you likely have a little person watching you constantly and paying attention to everything that you're doing. And I think one of the hardest lessons for me has been telling Sonali to do something and then not doing it myself. And she's like, well, you didn't do it. I'm like, right. (laughs) like." and so, so just, um, uh, just, um, I think you're muted, Sean. Uh, just, oh, look at, look at who it is. (laughs) Um, just being a person who, um, sorry guys, Sonali's on the, on the call now. She looks so cute. Just, you know, like doing the work because you have somebody who's watching and also just for yourself, like to make yourself a better, better person. I mean, I think, I think we're all incredible people. And I think the beauty of the Be More Today podcast is that you've highlighted people who normally don't get highlights, right? Um, To show how incredible and extraordinary everyone is, even though they're not like Obama, who's the man, right? Um, And that we all have this ability to like do that. And so I'm like just being really long-winded in saying, Pay attention to the voices, pay attention to the words that you say to yourself, pay attention to the way that you feel about yourself, make changes to fix that, pay attention to the people around you who are watching that, who are paying attention to it. I can say like in our marriage, I think in the very beginning of our relationship, um, you keep saying 16 years, I don't feel like it's been that long, but um, (laughs) uh, in the beginning, I think I was really hard on myself and I think it was easy for you to... I think it was hard for you to deal with that, to have somebody who was like so negative about themselves. And I think after a while I started to be like, whatever, man, I'm amazing. And you're lucky to be with me. Right. And I think that once I turned that corner, um, it changed our relationship in a lot of ways, because you didn't have to carry the luggage or the baggage of reminding me all the time about my worth, Right. So then you could drop that and then you could pick up a Chanel bag to give me. Just kidding. (laughs) Right. But like, you know what I mean? And so I think that like uh, it's about, it's about just really, really paying attention to the, to the way that your thoughts, your words impact you, but also the people around you and how you can, how you can change that. And I'm doing it too. So I'm not, I'm not over here being like, that's, I figured that out. Like that's a daily, that's a daily for me. That's a daily, daily daily struggle. Cause that little girl that's sitting in your lap looks so unbelievably cute. I want her to know and feel like she can do anything that mistakes are okay. That she uh, doesn't have to be afraid or that she could do things afraid. Um, and that she is, you know, that, that her, that her potential is, is boundless, but it's hard to do that when you're, if you're always telling yourself that you ain't nothing.
0: Well said. That's well, well, well said. So wants to say one thing. Go ahead, So. Oh, hi,
1: my hi. goodness gracious. I love you, too.
0: <laughs> Pie Cakes. Let the people know where they can follow you on social media or other uh,
1: Sure. My <laughs> name on Facebook is Vangi Pai. H-E-M-A-N-G-I. Last name P-A-I. My um. Instagram handle is pie cakes.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And awesome. Thank you so much. Pie cakes and Monkey pie for being on the show today. Uh, you've made this first episode for season two off the charts <laughs> and it is a red table Talk for real. This is basically like a conversation in our house and our it on the phone now. So for all you listening, continue to follow us on our platform. Be more today's show. We're going to be now in 30 countries doing our thing and we'll be doing new shows every single Monday. And don't forget our quotation from today. Actually, I got this quote from your board, your Facebook page. It's actually on your page. Um, watch well, it's your... not
1: mine. It's, some, it's definitely somebody else's. Yeah, I pulled it from somebody Yeah, it's on else. your
0: page. So I had to give, you know, how to you guys. That's where I found it. But yes, someone said, watch your thoughts. They will become words. Watch your words. They will become actions. Watch your actions. They will become habits. Watch your habits. They will become character. Watch your character. It will become your destiny. Make sure this year you watch your thoughts. It starts right there. Right. And from there, that point forward, it's up to you to make sure you have the right thoughts going forward to make sure you can have a better destiny. All right, folks, watch us on Be More Today in all platforms uh, for the book, the Amazon, (laughs) the podcast. If you want to send us an email, be more today. That's be more number two day at gmail.com. And as always, folks, I always say have a good day. Have a good day. Have a good night have a, good night and have have a, a great good life. life have a great life and, and continue to take your steps and continue to be a good boy and a good girl we'll just leave it at that folks <laughs> happy new year
1: happy new year eat more today everybody eat.